Race matters. 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 I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories, and song, and we are privileged to be part of that storytelling today and every day at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present. We're broadcasting from Redfern right now, the birthplace of black theatre in this country and a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. You're listening to Race Matters. This is a show made by people of colour speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. This week's episode is all that and more. We are really excited to be airing the debut of our first ever series, Beyond Borders by Binta Yard. Conceptualized, produced and edited by Binta herself, the series discusses how expressions of blackness materialize in the UK and in Australia, and the ways in which black folk from either place continuously move beyond the limitations set by and redefine the mainstream amid the divergent history of the African diaspora in these places. You won't want to miss this. First, an exclusive interview between resident FBI producer and writer Tariro Makondo and Binta speaking through how the piece came together. You don't know a thing about a story, tell it wrong all the time. To start, can you please introduce yourself and um, discuss a little about Beyond Borders? Sure. Um, so my name is Binta Yard. I'm a, what am I, a creative, I guess, or someone who likes to do creative things um, from Sydney, Australia, currently living in London. Um, and my latest project is called Beyond Borders. It's a mini podcast series um, about how blackness materializes in the UK and in Australia, given the quite different histories that the diaspora, the African diaspora has in those countries. And it also looks at how black people in both countries constantly kind of redefine and push beyond the mainstream. And how have your experiences of black womanhood differed between being in Sydney and being in London? Um, I think they've, they've differed greatly. I mean, I moved to London, not solely because of, but in large part because of kind of the lack of racial diversity and racial education in Australia. Um, and I wanted to live in a more diverse, um, yeah, country. I wanted to live around more of my skin folk. And so in living in London, I feel like I've kind of been able to um, not necessarily define myself, but live 
day to day, not just as a black woman, but as as Binta. Um, and I think being racialized is a really common thing in Sydney, especially if you're navigating circles that aren't um, occupied by people of color or by black people. And I don't find the same experience here in London, even when I'm navigating circles that are all white. And I think that's just because London is more of a melting pot and racial diversity is more of a norm here, where it isn't in Australia. So like my race is not my identifier anymore. Um, that's not to say I'm not proud of it or anything like that, but it's not something that constantly comes up in conversation. It's not the butt of jokes. It's not, um, it's not something that I constantly have to be aware of. Like I'm able to live as me, which I really appreciate here that I don't think I have that experience in Sydney very much. And is London as inclusive and I guess racially progressive as you initially thought prior to moving there? Um, yes and no. Like on a surface level day to day, I would say yes. Um, you know, I think representation here is quite good. I don't know if that's just because like representation kind of needs to be good these days because there's no excuse anymore. Um, but representation is quite good. Um, diversity, like I said, is is like thriving here. <clears throat> but I would say that at an institutional level, looking at, you know, government policies and looking at the history of the UK um, and the kind of socio, social, economic and political state of the country, like there's very much a racial element to it whereby black people or people of like non-white backgrounds are constantly done wrong by the system and I think that the system here is so much more kind of complex than it is in Australia because it's so much older and because they've been doing this for a long time like these guys in the first episode of one of the of the podcast one of the um, ladies I interview Maxine says that British are the architects of racism and like they literally are <laughs> living that you're like wow like these guys have it figured out so like on a day-to-day -day, yeah it's fine it's cool um you have like your odd experiences here and there but generally speaking I would say that the UK is more institutionally racist than Australia um but the racism is so deep that it's almost like how do you even begin to address it like it's it seems like it's part of the bones of this country it's really weird I guess to navigate institutional racism and even the day-to-day -day racism that you may experience you've kind of had to build I assume you've kind of had to build a community how have you gone about you know moving your life to London and then building that community and more so finding that community as well yeah I um <laughs> whenever people ask me this question I'm like my answer is so lackluster because it came about by accident um when I moved to London I didn't know anyone here um so I kind of just jumped straight into the deep end and was lucky enough to meet um some people through I think just events and things like that who ended up being you know my people um and to this day are still like people I consider really good friends um and then yeah I think just through luck through I don't know God's will through whatever you want to call it the right people have come into my life and so I've been able to, to build a really solid support network that I feel really lucky to have but it wasn't like an active thing on my part um personally I'm not a very social person so 
I don't I don't reach out to friends like I don't I don't try and make friends with people um but I was really lucky that I got approached by the right people and um those people have stuck with me through it and you know they've really been there for me um and yeah they've definitely helped London become a place I can call home like I consider it my second home and it's definitely because of those people yeah I'd love to know what community means to you yeah I think like community to me is really important whether you're you know an extrovert and introvert whether you're social or not everyone needs their community everyone needs their people that they can turn around to and know that they're going to have their back um I think community especially as someone who comes from quite a big family and someone who has a lot of family um it's 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 like something within me like I can't I can't not have community around me um but I think obviously it means different things to different people. For me, I would say um, it just means having having reliable people in your life that you know have got you beyond what you can offer them. It's not like a um, necessarily conditional relationship. It's not a relationship with ulterior motives or an ulter- or a relationship to you know gain clout or get a contact contact or whatever. Um, it's just a like it's a really pure and nice relationship um and I think the beautiful thing about community is that it like spans it it doesn't kind of adhere to borders it can span entire entire planets like my community I would say is here it's in London um it's in Sydney I have some community in France I have some all over the world and I feel really lucky to be able to say that um and all of those people are people I hold really dear to my heart and definitely people who um like push me to do more in life and to kind of go after what I want they're definitely people who believe in me probably sometimes more than I even believe in myself so I'm really grateful for that um and I think it's something that everyone everyone needs in their life communities really yeah and your work is usually in the auditory platform in the auditory medium where do you feel the most seen that's a really good question. <laughs> um, I, yeah, maybe the auditory platform. I mean, I um, my interest in like auditory work kind of comes from one, like I have a background in radio. My mom used to work in radio. My dad used to work in radio as well. Um, and so I spent a lot of time growing up like around kind of radio, like audio things. Um, I think as well when telling stories like these um, and speaking about things like race and, you know, my first piece was about black womanhood in Australia. I think those are things that are really important for people to hear. Um, And aside from the video kind of world, just being a lot more work altogether and being a lot more complex and me maybe not having the, um, skills or expertise to to even enter into that world I think that audio is my preferred route because it allows people to be seen beyond the physical and as much as we'd like to admit that we'd like to say that you know we don't have prejudice based on people's appearances or, or um our opinions of people aren't swayed by by the physical or by what we're being shown visually I think it's a subconscious thing that we tend to um our views tend to be influenced by what we're seeing. So if you remove that element, there's no, there's nothing to sway your opinion beyond the information that's being put in front of you. And that was really important to me because I think 
these topics are topics that people don't necessarily agree with. Um, they're not topics that are universal truths. Do you know what I mean? They're people's opinions and people speaking about their experiences. And there's always gonna be someone who's like, well, I never experienced that, so it mustn't be real. That's not necessarily the case. And so it requires an open ear and an open heart for you to just listen, take in what's being said and process it however you want. And I think that when you take the visual away from that, it allows you to like kind of process this really pure, um, kind of like un, un, untouched, un, like unburdened by expectation, prejudice, personal opinions. Um, and, and yeah, just take in what people are saying and take it as face value and then do what you want with that information. And I guess my last question is, who did you have in mind when creating Beyond Borders? I did not have, <laughs> I didn't have anyone in mind in particular. Um, I definitely wanted, I wanted this to be like, almost like a talk show about like race, but not in like a sad or negative way. <laughs> um, and so that's kind of what it's become. Like the first episode I've interviewed um, Sison Kim Simang, who's like an incredible um, political analyst writer from Western Australia who has um, roots in South Africa and Maxine Thomas Asante, who's an incredible woman as well from the UK, um, who speaks really pertinently on, you know, like race relations in the UK. And then the second episode, which is music, I've got, um, Koji Radical, Chanel and Bless, two or three artists that I um, definitely admire. So I think I went into this with no um, set idea on who I wanted to speak to or who I wanted this to even reach because um, I just, just wanted it to kind of flow naturally. I didn't, I didn't prepare this kind of months in advance. I, I've kind of just gone with the flow um, and let the project take me where it wants to be and let um, things kind of fall into place themselves. Because um, I feel like that's where you get the most kind of organic and the best content is um, when things kind of just fall into place miraculously, which they definitely have um, quite recently. So I, don't, I didn't necessarily have anyone in mind per se. Um, but I will say that like in creating this, I thought that it would be a good thing to speak on because I know that in the circles I navigate in Australia, London's kind of seen as this like Mecca, as this like safe haven. Um, and you know, everyone wants to go to London or everyone wants to move to London and UK culture has such a stronghold on like Australian non-white culture as well. Like there are so many elements or so many kind of replication of UK black culture. In, in Australia. Um, so I think I just wanted to give like a real breakdown of like what it's like and let people know that like, yeah, it's cool, but it's not, it's not perfect. And there's a lot of work to be done. And, you know, the grass is always greener and it's up to you. I think I literally say this in the first episode, but the grass is always greener and it's up to you to pick which side you'd rather be on. Um, and yeah, I think hopefully that in listening to this, people feel like they've been given like a decent rundown of of what life is like for black people black artists what blackness is like in in both australia and the uk
So one of the interviews you're about to hear took place in Perth, Western Australia. So I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land, the Wadjuk people of Western Australia, and pay my respects to all elders, past, present and future. Yeah. I come from Babu, beginning of time, from the birth, from the first. If you want to hear the truth, my motherland, you remember in my youth. They told me my skin was a curse from the earth, and they took me for a fool. But under my review, I'm melanin, still run the earth, and the universe covered in two. We talking about you, black skin, black kin, black guy. Black love, black kids, black heart. Black and then and black start. If you're tired of hearing black heels, another black one. They try to wipe away all my black thoughts and cover up all my black past. Blow the nose of the barrel just cause they don't want to let me see up on the glory of God. The saying goes that the grass is greener on the other side. I still wonder if that's true. I tested the theory out myself by moving to London when I was 18 to get away from what I thought was a racially backwards and intolerant country. Moving to London was heavily motivated by the fact that racism just seemed less rife, diversity in general seemed to be more championed. But having lived here now for almost three years on and off, I can safely say that both Australia and the UK have their fair share of racial baggage, and it's honestly down to personal opinion which baggage you find lighter to carry. My name is Binta, and I'm a creative and soon-to-be lawyer from Sydney, Australia, living in London. And over the course of this series, I'm going to be breaking down what it means to be black in the UK and in Australia. This is Beyond Borders, a series discussing how expressions of blackness materialise in the UK and in Australia, and the ways in which black folk from either place continuously move beyond the limitations set by and redefine the mainstream. By talking through things like culture, music, racism, and everything that goes with it, I hope to paint a clear enough picture of how blackness exists in both the UK and Australia, ultimately to let you decide which side of the pond you'd rather be on. Black conscious, understand the plight of my people. Now we looking way past eagle. Another generation march on the steps to feel legal. Just so they can kill another hero. Sounds so feeble to fight for the rights that you know. The land that you own for the right that you own. Just to push back to the life that you know. Right back fighting for the rights of us only and my people. Despite our happy-go-lucky reputation worldwide, it is a truth well acknowledged by black people everywhere that Australia is mad racist. On a surface level, it's clear that the history of Indigenous people in Australia is probably the most stark illustration of this racism. It runs much deeper than that, though, and still carries historical significance as well as modern-day significance, both for the Indigenous people of Australia as well as those who migrated there well after. My destiny truly still hurting, melanin deep and I'm still out searching. Royalty, royalty, help me find shelf. Africa, Africa. To get a good picture of how exactly blackness has existed and persisted throughout Australian history and culture, I interviewed the incredible writer, social activist and political analyst Sisonke Msimang. For context, Sisonke grew up in South Africa, Johannesburg and moved to Australia in 2014. She comes from a family of revolutionaries who played an active role in the anti-apartheid movement, so she's certainly no stranger to racism, much less on a national scale. My name is Sisonke Simang. I am a, a writer and I live in Perth in Western Australia. 
So since moving to Australia in 2014, or should I say Perth specifically, Western Australia, what experiences have you had as a black woman that have really made you realise that there is definitely an othering of black people in Australia still to this day? So I guess since I first arrived in Perth, Western Australia, which feels like its own place, (laughs) to be honest, it is the place in Australia with the least amount of racial and ethnic diversity, I would say, Um, and with probably the longest and most racist history in respect of Indigenous people because of the long tenure of A.O. Neville, who was a commissioner for Indigenous affairs and basically played a very long and terrible role in the history of taking children, stealing children from Indigenous people uh, in the state. And so Western Australia is very, I would say that the kind of um, social fabric of it is very racist. Its history is incredibly toxically racist. Um, So I came here in 2014 and I certainly encountered like direct racism in a way that I hadn't encountered it for a long time. I mean, I've lived in the US, you know, you, you live in certain places and you kind of, I suppose you yeah, you make your way without having to deal with like just the kind of very basic level of racism. So a couple of incidents very early on, you know, after arriving and I was like, oh, wow, (laughs) this is where we are. (laughs) Um, And for lots of reasons, I don't get personally like hung up in individualized incidents of racism like it doesn't hurt my feelings it's more just like a oh my god are we still there that's ridiculous <laughs> so um you know the first one was at a shopping center uh close to my house and I was walking outside and it was this narrow street and it's quite a fancy little area so I'm walking on the street outside the shopping center and a white woman is walking towards me probably in her 40s and she looks at me and she just reaches out and she just touches me, touches my hair, just strokes my head like I'm some kind of curiosity. (laughs) And it was just so like, whoa. (laughs) It was so shocking and also unexpected and weird, frankly weird. And I like pulled back, you know, like instinctively just pulled back. I was like, what are you doing? And she was like, oh, I just wanted to touch. And I was like, no, you can't touch. You know, it's just like, and it's like, you know, we've got songs, we've got video. It's like, like, this is too basic. I don't know. It just felt, so that was my first encounter. And I was like, oh, I'm in a place where we are a cabinet of curiosities. Like I'm in a place of extreme underrepresentation. So that was like my first experience. And then the other one was much more scary and much more in line with what you see so many places in Australia, which is this, I was at uh, Woolworths or Coles. It was nighttime and I'd gone in quickly and there was a man uh, yelling at people and he was probably drunk. Uh, And anyone he looked at who caught his eye, who was of any kind of non-whiteness, he was screaming at them, get out of my country, get out of my country, get out of here, Australia for Australians. You know, that like, again, very xenophobic, very just like in your face kind of racism. So those were two very early Uh, experiences in my first six months of being here and it really felt like oh I'm in a place where there are not a lot of us and it felt felt very vulnerable making but also like on some level you know just given who I am like very like I've got to laugh at this this is crazy so that's all, all that's a long way of basically saying that I think 
um, my initial experience of Australia has been that it is an in intensely racist place uh, at a very basic level. And at the same time, of course, I'm middle class. I come already, you know, in my late thirties when I come here, I have a very strong already established sense of who I am. And, and more than anything, I think my class privilege protects me from so much. So while racism is definitely part of the ether here, it also isn't part of my daily life in a way that I know that is for lots of black people who live in Perth. So it's not, so not to, um, not to say it has been part of my life and actually it's not part of most people in Perth's life. I, I don't think that's the case. Black is beautiful, they never told us that black is beautiful, they never told us. Living in Australia now and having, you know, raised a family there, you've replanted your roots in such a foreign and seemingly, um, for lack of a better word, delayed place when it comes to race relations and racial education. How have you found that blackness has shaped Australian culture, if at all? That's a really interesting question. So on a daily basis, in terms of what you consume, whether it's the ABC or commercial radio stations or just watching like Australian television, there is not much of a visible, discernible influence of um, black culture, whether that is indigenous culture or whether that is uh, black diasporic culture, you know, globally, um, you can go through life here at a pop culture level with just basically like your top 40 hits. And so whoever is black on the charts is who's black on the charts. Like you can do that. Um, on the other level, of course, and I say this because now I'm a mother to teenagers, well, one who's a teenager and one is soon to be a teenager. The influence of blackness on their lives and on the lives of their friends is pretty intense. And again, here I'm talking about a blackness that is consumed rather than lived. And so these kids are, you know, listening to hip hop, to trap. They are watching YouTube videos. They are watching TikToks and everything black is cool and everything black is learnable. So they, in some ways, um, feel like they can replace the black performers who they love certainly for the for a lot of their friends and there's this very strange obsession with the n-word with the racial slurs that come from america i'm still trying to wrap my head around it so i don't have a, any answers about why this is what it is but it's definitely a thing that on a daily basis at school my daughter is hearing the n-word uh, from white kids, not used as insults against her, but used in a casual way as though they have a right to it. Um, and given the lack of Black people in numeric terms around them, I'm just fascinated that this is the way that Blackness finds its way into their lives as something that they're entitled to consume. Um, but as something that they have no visceral connection to. Mm. I think what you're saying is really interesting. Ultimately, I think it goes to the fact that, you know, blackness and um, the N-word specifically, which I think is still a very big issue, especially for children, black children who are growing up in a predominantly white society and having that word said to them. Um, it's 
a very easy easy way to assert yourself as black adjacent and it's kind of the easiest thing that they can do to portray themselves as cool or to portray themselves as with it for lack of a better word and I think that we definitely see that in everyday culture um, in the use of that word as kind of a, a colloquial term of endearment even within you know black cultures but then its extension to white white people as well and its use by white people is definitely a way to assert themselves as black adjacent so weird I, but it's kind of like the it's like the hair thing there's an entitlement you know I think the way you phrased it is really interesting and important it's that it's adjacency, but it's also like it's the blackest thing that they can do. And that notion that you can just reach out and touch somebody who you've never met before. The notion that you don't have very much interaction with this group of people, and yet you have a right to whatever terms that they have and whatever way they have of expressing themselves, even when you've been told not to do it. That there's, yeah, there's an entitlement at the heart, at the core of that, which is kind of in line with you know, everything that Western Australia has ever been. No, exactly. So my next question is, do you think that blackness and Australianity, for lack of a better word, you know, being Australian, are they antithetical concepts or is there somewhere where they meet and maybe even complement each other? In the first instance, if we pose them as antithetical to one another, then we we do the work of erasure, mm. which is what Tara Nellis was all about. So I am not prepared to give that space up um, at all. Uh, as someone who is indigenous elsewhere, I, my allegiance, my loyalty, my uh, politics is always in line with not forgetting the first people who were here and have been here. And so in some ways, I think um, Australia, as a nation that now exists, has, if it's going to be a place that people can live in with some measure of dignity, that everybody can live in with some measure of dignity, it has to be a place that goes back and acknowledges and does the work of recognition and until that happens, it's always going to be a wound that isn't, you know, isn't capable of being addressed. And so it's always going to either be something about building this um, identity of itself on top of a lie. Um, and that's, you know, that's always going to be a problem. So in the first instance, I would say uh, that just at a political principle level, I would say, no, it's not antithetical. But I would also say that it's tons of work that's been done in thinking about how everything from the way people speak, you know, the, the Australian accent, um, you know, borrows so heavily from indigenous languages and the way that sounds were made here before white people came. Um, uh, the whole notion of larrikinism, um, the entire way that I think white Australians see themselves as so resilient. Where did they borrow that from? Where did they get that from? Where did they learn that from? If not from indigenous people who they found here who were already resilient, already survived, you know, they, they learned so much. And so much of the, the lie about Australia is about how they either indigenous people weren't here or they didn't teach them anything. And it just, it, it just can't be, <laughs> it can't be that humans interact. This is not how human 
beings work, the technology of being human is such that if you see others there, you learn from them. You may deny that learning, but it doesn't mean the learning didn't happen. So I think that there's a lot of work to be done to recognize that Australia exists, its national personality, so much about this place, about what's valued and treasured about this place comes from indigenous, Aust indigenous people's cultures, ways of living, being, et cetera, et cetera. That's on the one hand. And then if we think about what that means for this new nation state that has been imposed on the place that we now have to live with because this is life and this is reality. Um, then I think there's some very interesting conversations that have to happen between black Australians of different types of blacks. Um, and that I think is a very important conversation because uh, we still live in a society in which uh, being black, skin color black, the essentialist race, racist notion of blackness really does matter. It determines your life chances. It determines how people look at you. It's a racist country. So we are bonded whether we want it or not. And I'm a person who wants it, but there are others who don't. We are bonded by our blackness and our experience, which is a global experience. And so in the first instance, I just wish there was more conversation, room, scope, uh, for those types of discussions amongst us, because I think there's so much, uh, you know, there's so much uniting us in terms of experiential stuff, as well as political and historical kind of things that we share. I think that's a really interesting point. I definitely agree. Um, and it actually ties in really well with my next question about faux racial blindness, which is a topic or a concept that you've spoken about um, quite a bit in some articles. And it's basically the notion that um, you know, I don't see colour, I see you as a human being, but I don't see your race um, as a factor when engaging with you. That is what someone who is racially blind would proclaim. Do you think that Australia's propensity for racial blindness, both on an everyday civilian level, but also at a political level, does more harm than good? Is there enough acknowledgement of racial difference in Australia? I still think that, I think it's changing. I think the... Um the Black Lives Matter stuff, um, you know, in spite of all my, some of my cynicism about that, I do think that it shifted the conversation into a gear that it hadn't been seen before in this country. Um, but generally at a day-to-day -day level, when you're, you know, at schools where you're chatting with someone on the side of the netball court, like the narrative is, I don't see your color. People wanna profess that to you as a way of making you feel welcome and comfortable. And given that they would not say that to uh, another white person, it always has the exact opposite effect, <laughs> particularly when we weren't even talking about anything to do with race or racism. <laughs> wow. So <laughs> there's a long road to travel on that one, but I think it does of course more harm than good because it, you know, it feeds into a narrative of denial. So what it is, is people's attempt to say, there's nothing to see here, nothing bad happened in our past and nothing bad is happening now. And so mm -hmm. when you deny that, it's very, very difficult for people to talk about their authentic experiences of racism, for people to talk about, you know, structural systemic things that happen not just to them, but, you know, continue to happen, you know, time after time to kid after kid to employee after employee, et cetera, et cetera. So that it is an incredibly damaging way of seeing, uh, you know, uh, how a society is, is structured. Black is beauty, they never told us. 
So you say in your memoir that home isn't a geographic space, and I definitely agree. Um, I think the African diaspora, as well as the wider migrant community in Australia, is a really good illustration of this. So how do you think that so many people from the diaspora, yourself included, have managed to make Australia a place to call home, when even the owners, the custodians of the land, still remain in social exile? I think that it will never be possible for me to call Australia home. I will never be possible. That one, I've already accepted it. Um, and it's it's not nice. It's, it's something that I initially was just like, well, that's just what it is and kind of move on. But the longer I'm here, the more that just really sucks. And, mm-hmm. and the reason why I cannot in good faith ever call this place home is because Indigenous people didn't welcome me here. So I come on a, I come uh, as a settler um, and... And I come as a settler, not because of something an indigenous person said to me, uh, although there are plenty who will say it, you know, and I, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's I come as a settler because the terms of this place are still so fundamentally unchallenged um, and some days feel unchallengeable. So so until Australia deals with this question, um, which in some ways it's like a, it's like in this iterative process, you have to have enough people present to shift the power dynamic to force the change but not enough people are gonna feel empowered to say it if you continue to deny right so this is a cycle um yeah so i won't feel like this place is home and my children certainly don't feel like this place is home because they're being told the n-word all the time and they're being denied that there's any difference between them and everybody else, even though they know it so clearly. So there's this like veil of denial. That's all. So there's this treacle that you have to get through, uh, which is not to say that it's unlivable, which is not to say that we don't make livings and we don't find joy and we don't, you know, make spaces that feel like home. I certainly have um, created spaces that feel like home, but home in the sense of land, in the sense of um, a real connection no that um that I won't have I don't see having it in my lifetime so my last question for you Sasonge is is there any hope if there is where can we find it what do we do and what can we as first and second generation Australians do to make this place more of a home for the future of the diaspora so I think that there's um always hope and Chelsea Watigo I don't know if you've read another day in the colony but she's written this book of essays and she's like fuck hope there's no hope uh nah nah not into hope and I respect that greatly because it's a very alluring <laughs> position to land at um but I always try to walk this line between um skepticism and cynicism and I think the same about um hope and optimism like I think it is important to have a uh, an eye out for what's working, to keep your eye on the big space of all the crap, because if you don't, then you will get hurt. You will get like literally physically hurt. So you have to, you know, you have to keep your eyes open, but you also have to look for things that are working. Um, one, so you can be there and be part of it uh, and help to build it and to expand the spaces. So I'm always trying to solve problems. So I think there's some interesting 
things that are happening in Melbourne as a city because there is such a presence of Black people from across the diaspora and because there's actually quite an interesting presence of artists and writers and all these cool and interesting people, many of whom are Indigenous too. And so those identities are starting to shape one another in very interesting ways that I can only, um, you know, think will will happen in WA, you know, a little while from now. So I think um, I think NAM presents an interesting space of possibility in Australia. I think if you look at what happened recently with the protests um, about Palestine and the solidarity between Palestinian um, activists, there's a big Lebanese community, as you would know, in Sydney, and some of those relationships with First Nations people. Um, there was a publication that was put together that was, um, you know, by uh, Black and Indigenous voices. I think they called it the Sunday paper as a kind of riposte to the Saturday paper. So there's spaces of activism and solidarity making and as well as geographic spaces that I think offer some interesting possibilities here. To contrast Sisonke's words, I interviewed Maxine Thomas-Asante coming to me live from Ghana about the role that blackness has played in shaping British identity and British culture in the UK. Obviously, the African diaspora has a much longer history in the UK than in Australia, but this doesn't necessarily mean that the issues that people face in Australia are not reproduced over here in the UK. influence of black culture in the UK is evident. From music to television to fashion and everything in between, it's clear that black UK culture has carved itself a space for recognition, not only in the UK, but worldwide. All that aside, though, when thinking about British culture in its original sense, you know, white, British, colonial, monarchy, all of that, (laughs) how do you think blackness has shaped British identity? Do you think it has? Or does black British culture kind of exist on a parallel with British culture, where they never really meet, they remain distinct from each other, but they coexist? So I definitely think British identity or British culture or Britishness is premised on whiteness and what it means to be proper. If you ask people abroad uh, internationally, what does it mean to be British? I don't know, British manners, the monarchy, colonialism, um, the export of institutions, the concept of a parliament. You know, you look at, you look at an array of um, ex-colonies and you see very similar structures of what it means to be democratic. So you could also talk about values, exported values, but all of those values are premised on this concept of what what I would argue is to be proper. And that idea of being proper and being civilized is very much premised on whiteness. Um, And I think that is very core to what British identity is understood to be but is very much unspoken. So when you start to really raise these questions about, well, civilized, what are we talking about when we say civilized? Because this civility was murderous, this civility was was violent. You know, we start to really pick at a scab in the British collective consciousness because people don't want to hear that. Even though there's kind of a shared silent understanding that British identity and Britishness is premised on whiteness, 
It's not something that's vocalised. It's not something that's acknowledged. And for a lot of white Brits, it's not something that they're willing to acknowledge. So what you get is this backlash and this real offence um, at, at your misunderstanding of what Britishness is, when really their whole concept of civility in this unspoken, shared public, public consciousness is foregrounded on a whiteness that is juxtaposed and, and marked differently to what it means to be a person of colour. Um, I speak about blackness more because it's what I know, it's what I've experienced, but I also think it's true for an array of non-white identities um, of which there are more than we could ever name in a, in a session of this length. We still see every day that black people are consistently dealt a bad, if not violently aggressive hand where white people are simply not. This isn't exclusive to the UK. We see it in Australia, we see it in the US, we see it worldwide. And there always seems to be a presumption of guilt when it comes to black bodies. It seems like oftentimes black people are put on trial, whether that's in a literal or figurative sense, simply for existing. Now, the continual harassment of black people for their mere existence is never framed as racism as such. There's always another way to explain it away, another justification that has nothing to do with race. In the case of the UK, there seems to be a really overt kind of active effort to explain anything that might be construed as racism away in terms that have nothing to do with race. And so I wonder, does that come down to too much acknowledgement of racial difference in the UK that they're trying to cover up? Or does it come down to a lack of acknowledgement? Ultimately, do you think that this acknowledgement or lack thereof is doing more harm than good? And how is it shaping the way that black people function in British society? Okay, so to start with, Brits are the chiefs of bureaucracy, the absolute architects of bureaucracy. And so internationally, you start to see this argument where it's like, okay, well, Britain is leading the way in terms of anti-racism and in terms of non-discrimination. Look at these reports, look at the library, you know, look at all this reading and research. And you open it, you read the recommendations, you look at the society and say, okay, well, great, you've written 15,000 research pieces and we can't see any change because the idea of these research pieces often is to sap the energy out of movements to sap the anger out of the people to direct it somewhere to distract people but not really to change the status quo because they know they know that the issue is is root deep you know do i believe the british police force is inherently and systemically racist yes but the racism goes deeper than that if we're only ever looking at one, the health service, separately, the police force, separately, parliament, separately, the judiciary, we're missing the whole point, which is that the, the shared consciousness, the foundational value system, the crux of our society is what is anti-black, is what is racist. And any institution which grows from that foundation is going to have embedded in it that institutional racism. I don't think you can you can root racism out of the police by looking at the police, is what I'm trying to say. Unless you actually look at the entire society, the shared consciousness, the history of these value systems, the reason that these institutions were created in the first place, we're not going to make progress. A parliament that was created where only land-owning men over 21 could vote is, I can't ever expect that to be democratic in the way that I understand democracy, what I understand as true democracy is what I understand as being deeply inclusive and listening 
It wasn't made to listen. It was, it was made to amplify property-owning men above everybody else. And that it continues to do. How can I be angry? I am angry. But it's doing what it was supposed to do. And so unless we really get to the root cause, the root values which are rotten, and we start to uproot those and take the time to reimagine a new future, we're not going to see change. But the difficulty also is that because we've all been conditioned in this reality, it's hard to imagine something beyond it. We can critique a lot because it's easy to see what's wrong. But when we start to want to, um, when we start to want to create change, we have to do the process of dreaming, radical dreaming, radical reimagination. It's very hard. And I always say, even like the concept of decolonizing, decolonizing um, creates the foreground for us to create a future. It is not that future. It tells us that we need to uproot everything that exists, design a new table and bring new voices to the table. It doesn't tell us what we decide once we make the table and we start those conversations, you know? So we're very much in this difficult environment where we can see what's wrong and we don't know how to necessarily put it right. But we know that we've got to keep fighting because the status quo is, is unacceptable. Do you think that radical dreaming in the UK seems to be something that's less of a possibility than in other countries, say the US? I think for me, one of the reasons why it looks less visible in the UK is because I'd argue that the UK is the designer of racism. I always say the UK designed it and the US mm -hmm. perfected it. <laughs> the, the UK designed it, they sent it out to Australia, they sent it out to the US, you know, Australia has their model. Uh, when you look at the immigration systems, we all have, they, they all have their models. But the UK, I would argue, is the designer. Therefore, I would argue that if we imagine it as like um, a dartboard, the UK is almost like the center of it for me because it's the ideological origin of where this came from. And so it's always going to be hardest to reach the, the very center. Like that is the point. However, these fights are not separate. They don't occur solely in national boundaries. They're very much transnational. And so, for example, when I look at the independence movements across Africa in the late um, 20th century, a lot of those thinkers came to London, congregated in London, did their thinking in London and took it back to their country. So um, to conceptualise these movements as being at all national is to limit the radical nature of black liberation we are inherently movers like as black people as african descendants we move that's what we do and we are very much in communication with each other so i think that a lot of the time uh if we look at the movement solely as they operate in britain it looks as though britain is not really participating as actively or as vocally in, in black liberation movements but if we look at britain as a geographical hub and we see how other movements have related to britain i think it's quite indisputable that really Britain's role has just looked a bit different. And as you said, I, I would never do the disservice of the activists which we see and who we know doing incredible work now. The war is happening everywhere. So I think it's important that we learn to show solidarity, collaboration, uh, shared resistance. But sometimes I think the grass can look greener. I think that's really interesting, especially considering, you know, the long history that African and African diasporic people do have in the UK that isn't necessarily replicated in Australia. So in saying that, how do you think black Brits have managed to balance and, you know, grapple with this dual existence that comes out of being brought up in a country that has such violent and quite frankly disgusting ties to the countries from which their blackness originates? So 
when we think about like the language we use for African Americans and the hybridity of even having a hyphen in between that word and the implication that has, I don't know that Black British identity has the exact same thing, even though it's like a similar number of syllables. I'm Black, I'm British. I do identify as Black British, but I know a lot of Black people in Britain who don't. I think Black Britishness is quite a young thing. I don't know that my parents, my mum was born in Finsbury Park in London. I don't know that she would, before anyway, before me and her engaged on it, I don't know that she would see Black Britishness the same way that I do. So that kind of hybrid identity, I also think is something that's complex and I think it's something that's generational. But to argue, to, or to, to answer the actual point of the question, I think we, we take whatever tiny space we're given and we use it for joy and happiness. And like when my when my nana talks about um, my nana talks about when she came in 1961, she came from Jamaica and she talks about how they used to have like the parties. She was only about 15 at the time, but they used to have like parties inside of houses. So somebody would have a house and they would pack that place out with as many bodies as could fit inside. There would be food. There would be music. The parties might last like two, three days. They didn't have a hall. They didn't have a huge space. They did not have a stadium. They had a house, a single house, but it would be used for joy. It would be used for sharing. It would be used for, for, for that love, you know, sharing food, providing for others, laughter, joy, like food, music is a huge part of, of blackness for me, for me. And um, I think for a lot of other people as well. So I think the thing of even growing up, my, my house, my parents always used to have a really open door policy, very much compared to my white friends. Um, and I think even that is like a practice of creating and carving as, as much space as you can find and have, using it to, to promote joy, using it to share and using it to love. And for me, that is a crux of black Britishness. They don't give us a lot of space, but the space we do have, we use well. a huge amount of racial activism in the UK um, in every corner of the country really and it's really refreshing to see having come from a country where race obviously is a very taboo topic still. I do wonder though moving forward is there any light on the horizon you know are there any breakthroughs coming up that point to an improvement maybe of race relations in the UK or can we or should we expect to stay in this consistently uphill battle that you know we've seen for the longest in the UK and that we see in Australia as well. I think we've done a really great job through Black Lives Matter. Um, and I say we because I think it's something that, you know, there were specific people, Black Lives Matter is its own organization, but I say we because I said I think it was something that was collectively owned. The horizontality of Black Lives Matter means that like a lot of us can put our labor into it and our love into it and, and are part of that. I think we've created a conversation. We've started a conversation, we've shaken things up, and I think we've shown that a lot of these perspectives are not um, marginal. So now we've created a ruckus, we've created disruption, we've shaken up the place and said change is needed. And they're looking back at us saying, okay, but what? What do you mean? What do you want? How do we appease you? How do we make you happy? How do we be seen to be doing the right thing? Not how do we do the right thing, how do we be seen to be doing the right thing? And um, that's where 
I was saying earlier about radical imagination, that's where we have the chance to come back with ideas. And I think lots of people are doing that work. So in the UK specifically, we're seeing a lot of conversation about decolonising the curriculum. Um, there are lots of people fighting that fight. So I think um, we started a conversation, we, we caused some disruption, we shook the earth. When you're like planting, uh, you sh- you know, you've got to t- tussle the ground a bit. And now you get to plant seeds and watch them grow. But at the same time, I resent the chase of racial equality a little bit because I don't want to be treated the way they treat lower class white people either. You know, I don't want to be treated the way that the people in need of support in terms of food, in terms of energy, in terms of housing are being treated in this day and age. That crosses racial lines. Um, So if racial equality means that you want to treat me the way that you treat the average white person, I think we still have a long way to go. A long, long way to go. Equality in the status quo is like very much a bare minimum to me. Um, As much as Black Lives Matter is an incredible movement, I want to call for more than not being killed. That's so bare minimum for me. I don't want to just not die. I want to thrive. I'm fighting for me to thrive, for people who look like me to thrive, for people who look nothing like me to thrive. My name is Maxine Thomas-Asante, she, her, and I am, what am I? I'm a person very passionate about black liberation. My work um, is in anti-racism, and I'm evaluating and repositioning for myself what that means going forward. So if you're interested in collaborating or interested in looking up my work, uh, maxineta.co.uk is my website. Um, And yeah, reach out. Thank you so much. There you have it, folks. That is the first episode of Beyond Borders, a series discussing how expressions of blackness materialize in the UK and in Australia, and the ways in which black people from either place continuously move beyond the limitations set by and redefine the mainstream. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters.